Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're talking about Glass Onion, a Knives Out Mystery. Look at that. Dear friends, my beautiful disruptors, my closest inner circle. We could all use a moment of normalcy, and so you are cordially invited for a long weekend on my private island. Where we will celebrate the bonds that connect us, and I hope your puzzle-solving skills are whetted. Ah! Because you will also be competing to solve the mystery ah! of my murder. Travel details to come. Please forward any dietary restrictions. Love and all my kisses, Miles. This is an American mystery comedy. Directed by Ryan Johnson. The cast includes, I do declare, it's James Bond. The main character of Fight Club, Teresa from Moonlight, Agatha Harkness, Aaron Burr, Penny Lane, Drax, Bugs from the new Matrix movie, Tina from Stranger Things, and Trooper Wagner. I didn't realize this, but you just pointed this out to me, that Trooper Wagner, the guy who plays Trooper Wagner in the first one, plays Daryl in the second one. Um, completely unrecognizable to me. Uh, pretty cool little pool there. Right. And, and you know how some directors love to bring their actors with them on all their projects. I mean, there's never been a more shameless uh, inclusion. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but guy, then uh, suddenly you... these aren't in the same universe or this guy's in like two guys in the same universe. You know, like what, what does this imply <laughs> Unless... exactly? Uh, unless this is setting up the Trooper Wagner spinoff series uh, where he like was a cop, but then he like went through some stuff and was also best friends with Miles Wagner somehow. Maybe his first name then, is Daryl. We just don't know. Tr- he's Trooper right. Daryl Wagner. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> uh, so I watched this movie on Netflix. It was honestly unavoidable. I, I was like obligated to watch this based on how much Netflix was recommending it to me. Joey, how did you watch it? A same thing. I, I was trying to click on other things. I was trying to watch um, Alice in Borderland, and I kept accidentally watching Glass Onion. So thank you, Netflix. Right. It was like, looks like you're trying to uh, watch Glass Onion, but you clicked on the wrong thing. <laughs> like, Let me help you with that. Luckily, we fixed that for you. Here you go. <laughs> um, okay. Well, before we begin our conversation about Glass Onion, we'll go over the events in your synopsis, Joey. Go ahead. A mysterious box is delivered to four prominent Americans. Connecticut politician Claire DeBella, chief scientist at a tech monopoly, Lionel Toussaint, actor, fashionista, and pop culture icon, Bertie J, and men's rights activist and Twitch streamer, Duke Cody. Immediately, all four joined a conference call to decide how to open the box. Despite its many puzzles and intricate design, they all know exactly what it is. It's an invitation from their friend and benefactor, billionaire Miles Braun. A woman is shown sitting in front of a fifth version of the puzzle box, but instead of engaging with its inviting games, she simply smashes it with a hammer. This is Andy. We learn later that she and Miles were business partners, but that Miles had ruthlessly cut her out of their company. Finally, we are introduced to Benoit Blanc, the world's greatest detective. He has been sitting in the bath for weeks because of the ongoing pandemic. He's feeling depressed without a good case to follow, but then comes a knock at his door. All six people show up on a dock in Greece. Everyone is wearing masks except for Duke and his girlfriend Whiskey. 
Soon, Ethan Hawke shows up and sprays something into everyone's mouth, claiming they no longer need to wear masks. They take a private boat to Miles Braun's private island. A glass dock rises from the ocean to meet them. Miles is on the shore playing Blackbird on Paul McCartney's guitar. Once everyone has arrived, Miles explains how the weekend will go. First, they will hang out on the island, which has only robotic staff. Then, at dinner, they will begin a murder mystery, which Miles hopes will take all weekend. He then pulls Blanc aside to talk to him. It turns out, Miles did not send an invitation to Blanc. One of his guests must have reset their box and sent it to the detective as a joke. But Miles isn't really bothered. He is happy to have Blanc as a guest and invites him to hang out with the others. At the pool, the guests talk and Miles jokes. Miles explains his disruption theory about why each of these people gravitate toward each other. And he interjects that he's wrong. All of these people are simply here for the money and power Miles wields. Before the mystery starts, Miles shows off his biggest prize yet. He has the actual Mona Lisa here at his estate. It is protected by extremely sensitive sensors and thick panes of glass, but, of course, he has a secret override installed so that he can gaze at her directly. At dinner, Miles explains the rules of the game, and immediately Blanc solves the puzzle. Miles is annoyed, but privately, Blanc explains. He is worried for Miles' safety. All of the people he invited here have motive and opportunity to kill him. Miles has been developing a new type of hydrogen-based fuel called Clear. Claire and Lionel are being pressured into using it at their jobs. Birdie's signature sweatpants are being manufactured in a Bangladeshian sweatshop, which Miles is arranging for her to take the fall for. Miles is having sex with Duke's girlfriend, and Andy, well, she was betrayed by her co-founder and friend. Back at the party, the mood is dour. Everyone is drinking and planning on going home in the morning, but Miles returns to lighten things up. The music starts and he pours more drinks. He hands his off to Duke as they watch Birdie dance. Duke begins to choke violently and dies quickly. Everyone is shocked, especially Miles, because Duke was drinking from his glass. Further, Duke's omnipresent firearm is missing from its holster. Blanc tries to calm everyone and call for the police. However, Miles' dock cannot be accessed unless it is low tide. As was scheduled during the game, the lights promptly turn off at 10 p.m. and everyone freaks out. Blanc and Andy run into each other outside, but before they get very far in their conversation, Andy is shot in the chest. As everyone gathers around, Blanc shoes them inside for one last reveal. Here, the story resets, and we see who invited Blanc to the island. It turns out, a few weeks ago, Andy was killed. Blanc is visited by her quiet twin sister, Helen. Together, they hatch a plan to go to the island and figure out who might have killed Andy. Blanc will claim he doesn't know who invited him, and Helen will pretend to be Andy. Through this subterfuge, we learn more about the group dynamic. All of these people were friends with Andy, and Andy introduced them to Miles. At first, they were skeptical, but then Miles opened doors and gave them opportunities they never would have dreamed of before. Then, Miles decided he wanted to go all in on Clear, his new fuel, but Andy told him it was too risky. So he sued her for the intellectual property of their company. In court, each of their friends turned on Andy and sided with Miles. The entire thing rested on a napkin that Andy had sketched the idea on, but had lost. 
If she had the napkin, it would expose Miles for the liar he is. But Andy did find it, and she sent an email claiming such to all her former friends. This is why one of them wanted to kill her, to protect Miles and therefore themselves. So who killed Andy? And Duke, for that matter. Helen, despite getting shot, didn't die. She was only pretending to buy herself more time. Well, it should be obvious who the killer is. It was Miles. After he got Andy's email, he sped to her house and staged her suicide. Then he found the napkin and brought it to his island. He also poisoned Duke because he had learned about Andy's death from his annoying phone. Helen appears like a ghost, but Blanc tells her there's nothing she can really do. So Helen starts smashing stuff. She breaks every glass statue in the place and lights a giant fire in the middle of the room. The fire is sucked into the ventilation system, igniting the clear, and the entire place explodes. Helen races toward the override system and exposes the Mona Lisa to the flames, destroying it forever. In the wreckage, all of Miles' friends turn on him and say they won't support him and his crimes anymore. As the sun rises, Blanc and Helen sit on the beach to enjoy justice being served. The end. There we have it. The events of Glass Onion will begin with our pros and cons. Joey, what did you like about Glass Onion? I thought Daniel Craig is great. He's a great actor. Uh, and he's just having so much fun in this movie. And I love to see it, honestly. Um, Ed Norton, really like him too. He's very hateable in this movie. Uh, he plays the bad guy extremely well. Um, I think the dialogue and the monologues are well-written, well-executed. This movie is very clippable. You can share it on, tw- on TikTok and Twitter uh, with no problem. Um, and uh, I think this movie is trying to say something. And I will give it compliments for for the attempt uh, and of course one of my favorite things in movies doppelganger shenanigans this movie has doppelganger shenanigans and honestly it, it's good it's, it's some good stuff i appreciate it thumbs up for me what about you what did you like about this movie well first of all i thought this movie was funny and i enjoyed that i think that the glass onion metaphor works it's uh it's something that's kind of omnipresent through multiple aspects of this movie and i think that it, yeah, the idea is there and, and it works. I, I like the structure of this movie. I think it's well written and planned out, uh, and I have uh, arguments to support that. Uh, <laughs> I I also enjoyed this cast, and I I thought they did a good job. Different from the first movie, where you had a larger ensemble cast, this movie put a lot more weight on each individual actor, and um, I I enjoyed their performances. I also loved the rewatch of this one because after knowing what happened and having a more critical eye on the second viewing i felt like this movie dangles important information right in front of you and gets you to look past it uh, and also distracts you uh very heavily with a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter uh and i think that's something to that's impressive to pull off in a mystery movie so i enjoyed that aspect as well so let's. Uh, those are our pros. Now let's take a look at what we didn't like. Uh, Joey, what are your cons for this movie? I think we won't wait. Let our. I think we should not uh, dangle this in front of our audience too much longer. Uh, you know, instead of uh, having a twist at the middle of the movie like this one does, I think we should say here that I think we both disagree pretty heavily about how we feel about this movie. And for me, I I really dislike this movie. I think it's liberal propaganda. I think it misses the forest for the trees. I think it looks terrible. I think the storytelling is all over the place. 
Subversion takes priority over telling a coherent and entertaining story. I think Ryan Johnson thinks he's very clever, but he doesn't want us to be clever too. Um, the inherent contradiction of propping up the world's greatest det detective against billionaires in the elite, I think is completely goes over uh, the head of the writers of this movie. Um, I think it, it doesn't actually understand what it's trying to say and what it does say. It doesn't say well. What about you? Well, I wish they had done more with the dong thing, dong. Uh, the way that that was introduced. <laughs> and it's, I didn't understand it at first because when I, when I heard the dong, it just sounds like a, I don't know, like it, it the way that it's an actual human voice saying dong, I think is hilarious. And I, w I wish that it had come to more. I know they used it a couple times, but I felt it was really underwhelming. It could have been really memorable. Uh, but I know it's just another stupid Miles Braun idea. <laughs> uh, so maybe you could say that that's a, uh, how it's supposed to be meant. But um, I thought that there were moments where this movie was really unserious in serious situations, especially how they kept on bringing up the golden tit, uh, like these dramatic moments that I felt were supposed to be dramatic, still tried to be funny at the same time. And I think you can do both in the same movie, but you can't always do both at the same time. And uh, I also think that this movie tries to have it both ways with its like criticism of vapid celebrity culture, but also uh, relishing vapid celebrity uh, cameos with the way that they have like the celebrity products. Uh, like I didn't get the impression that uh, there's anything wrong with uh, Jeremy Renner having hot sauce that he can just create a whole industry off of his celebrity uh, our whole business off of his celebrity like there's no criticism of uh you know his like that the same way that they're criticizing these other titans of industry who are allegedly you know bad people um so or maybe not even allegedly like truly bad people but um so i i do think there's a little bit of uh you know poor execution when it comes to some of the commentary, uh, which I think we're about to get into in our overall <laughs> section. Okay, so I, um, I'm struggling with this because I can't decide if I dislike this movie or if I really dislike this movie. Um, when, I, when you watch a movie, all right, let's start here. <laughs> you enter into a contract <laughs> with the storytellers. You agree to suspend your disbelief, to enjoy the ride, to be swept up in the dreamlike experience of watching a film. Even if it doesn't make sense while you're watching it, you make the choice to put aside your rational mind and let someone take you on a journey. Afterward, there'll be time for nitpicking and criticism. But during the movie, I'll believe anything and you tell me and accept any event. I feel like Ryan Johnson abuses this contract. He puts things in front of you only to shift the script later. He constantly puts expectations forward only to do something different. When you well, what you first dismissed as just an artistic choice later becomes part of the story, a deliberate misdirection that breaks the traditional narrative structure in order to be more surprising. <laughs> Listen, subvert all you want, disrupt even, disrupt to your heart's content. You want to disrupt? I'll support your disrupting every day. Go ahead. Actually, I like it when you disrupt stuff. But this is not <laughs> mere disruption. It is betrayal. When I watch something, I want to be able to see the path from beginning to end. Even if there are twists and turns and new information that is revealed at the very end, when done with intention, it can be such a powerful and incredible feeling. But the second time, I want to be able to say, wow, it was there the whole time. This is why he said that. This is why he did that. It just it didn't make sense before, and now it all comes together. And I, I want I have just some examples here that we will get to, but let me say this first. This is not what's happening here. Instead, the same shots are shown to us twice. The first time that Blanc's perspective 
First time it's from Blanc's perspective and then from Helen's. It's the exact same scene, but this time more is revealed. Is this really subversive filmmaking? Are you subverting the narrative structure or are you just lying? I'm okay with being tricked or being misled, but there's no indication that there's a second story beneath the first. There's two, I have two strong examples and then I have uh, some other weaker examples that I think support this. The first one is when Duke is watching Whiskey uh, in the bedroom with Miles, right? He's standing, he's like running around the uh, complex and then he sees uh, Miles and Whiskey laying on the bed together and he's like kind of hiding, right? So that they won't see him. And he's, and then you see Blanc, see him, and then you see Duke's fist like clench, like, ah, oh, I'm so mad, whatever. Later, you find out there's an entire sequence of dialogue that you don't hear, all right? And all you see is, all you see is him clenching his fist. And then later, there's like an entire sequence of things that is cut out of that like uh, first showing um, that allows him, that, that, that makes it seem like uh, uh, he's not upset that, he, that Whiskey is sleeping with Miles. He's upset that uh, Miles isn't giving him an opportunity to be on the news, right? To be part of the alpha news empire. Right, right. Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? Like the yes. first part is like is is shown to be specifically this one thing right he's using the narrative the language of filmmaking to say this is why he's upset right and then later he's like no actually you're wrong he was upset about this it, it it's like okay i guess i guess i'm okay with like i'm okay with you changing the narrative but this is not a reveal right this is not like oh 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 it makes sense now right it, it, it's not putting pieces together it's adding new pieces Absolutely. There, there's no like, there's no perspective shift that should reveal that new information that we didn't already have before. Like the right. second time, it's like, well, Andy is there, but it's like <laughs> we have this kind of hilarious scene where it's like one guy being watched by another guy who's being watched by a girl. Like they're all like head next to the object they're hiding behind. Like, it, it looks like something out of Scooby Doo. Uh, <laughs> no, I I definitely see what you're what you're saying. It's like there's nothing within the actual story that would justify the omission of that information besides misdirection and perpetuation of this shroud of mystery that should be around this you see his fist clench and you're supposed to be like ah he's angry about something but the evidence that you have could only lead you to one conclusion there's no chance for you to say okay he could be mad about something besides this you know it could be any number of things that make him angry exactly and and suddenly like the Again, he's using Ryan Johnson is using the language of filmmaking. Something that if you've watched anything, you don't have to be a, a film reviewer or you know a critic or anything. You can just be someone who watches videos online, right? He's using the the what's called montage, the the juxtaposition of images to tell a specific thing, and then he's saying, "Oh, that's wrong. Actually, no. Actually, the what I showed you before that was just a lie, right?" And and it kind of it just taints the entire thing for me. I feel the exact same way about uh, the the first Knives Out as well, where he he's he's subverting the traditional like uh, mystery structure, but it doesn't do it in a way that I think is justified. Right? He he's making a decision to say, okay, this is actually what the story is about, and then changing it and then changing it again. But he's abusing your familiarity with the art form to get that subversion instead of earning it by showing and telling. You know what I mean? I think there are other examples where he does do this in this movie, but it's 
I, I still have problems with it. The other one that really bothers me is when Helen arrives on the beach. So everyone arrives there, right? Um, uh, and uh, Miles is hugging everyone. He sees Andy. He's shocked. He's confused, right? He looks, he looks uh, kind of scared, actually, um, which, is, which is great because that's how he should look because he thinks Andy's dead. Uh, then everyone walks away and it's just Blanc and Andy on the beach. But it's not Andy, obviously. It's Helen. And Blanc and Helen have been having this um, conversation for a long time. But Andy introduces herself to Blanc right there. Says, hi, I'm Andy right to establish her as being different from the rest of them right but not acknowledging at all that this is uh part of her you know subterfuge or this is part of the lie there's no indication that anyone else is around to hear them right there's no reason for her to like act like she's being andy in this exact moment the only clue you get that there's something more to this is that he uh you know bends down to tie his shoe and then later we get a con some context that uh they actually do talk briefly on the beach uh out of character you might say um but and she does in when you first see it she does lean toward him like like for about a frame um so I don't know, maybe I was supposed to take something from that, but uh, the introduction, her introducing herself to him, right, with, and then them both acting like this is the first time they've met, like, what am I supposed to, am I supposed to believe, like, oh, uh, there's something here or something, but, but, uh, okay, my problem is not that they didn't do anything, the problem, well, no, my problem is, why wouldn't you do something? Why wouldn't you sprinkle in something right here, right? Why wouldn't you be like, why wouldn't she say, Hello, Mr. Blanc. Good to see you again, or something. You know, something mysterious. Just give you a little t hint that, like, oh, there's something deeper here. Something going on. You know, it doesn't have to be a reveal. It's just, it's just like a, a tiny little, like, uh, a piece of dialogue or, or a mannerism or something that would give you the indication that there's something going on here, right? Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you put that in there? Yeah, I, I think there's something to that. Um, I, I do think it's. Yeah, I, like looking back on it, there's nothing you can take from it, which I think is definitely unsatisfying. I think it's fair to hide like the fact that they know each other through the first half of the movie because that's your whole twist. Um, but it would be nice to leave something behind and say like, if you were really perceptive, you could have picked up on this fact. Um, this is like, and I do think this happens in other parts of this movie too where it's like it's such a double down on the misdirect that it almost feels unfair it's like there's no you're, you're really stacking the deck here to make it so that i'm not going to catch your uh that your twist when yes. uh and and then th that makes the twist less satisfying because you're like okay well there's no way i would have known uh at least not from this scene exactly that's or exactly, honestly, my, that's exactly I, my point i didn't in, in my rewatch there was stuff that i that implicated miles and we'll go over in detail how i think you could maybe solve this case in the same time as benoit but there's nothing to give you the i i mean maybe you find examples but i i don't think i can think of any examples that would give away that she's the twin before no you I, I don't think there is and let's let's talk about let's talk about the miles taking duke's gun just just briefly and we can come back to this later yeah um when you first mentioned, when you, I read through your, your notes before we did this, and when you said that you could see Miles take Duke's gun, I'm like, are you, really? I went back through, I was spent probably about 10 minutes just rewatching the same thing over and over again to see if I could figure out where it was. Eventually, I did see it. it and if you go back and watch it, it's incredibly smooth. I could not, a really, really amazing sleight of hand work done by Ed Norton and um, Ryan Johnson. Honestly, though, like, 
is sleight of hand that impressive of a <laughs> of a skill? Almost anyone can learn it, right? And if you have the the beauty of editing on your side, you can pretty much get away with anything. <laughs> but it's still right. it still looks amazing uh, to to see it done. Um, it's right when uh, uh, right after Duke um, shows Miles his phones, and he's like, "Look at these numbers," but he's really saying look at my phone because I know Andy is dead and therefore I have leverage over you in this moment, right? Confusing, honestly, not really clear what was going on in that moment, even after the reveal. But regardless, uh, Miles and uh, Duke hug after this. And then as Miles is pulling away, he reaches down toward Duke's like crotch and pulls the gun out. You can't see the gun at all. Then he's, he fumbles with something behind his back so you can see it behind him. Then he goes up the stairs and you can see a little bit of an indicate indentation in his sweater. It's really tough to hit. If you watch it on a big screen, I bet you it's a little easier to see. And then he, and then the, he gets to the drink preparing like little thing that he's got a little, uh, what's the bar part. Yeah. And you see him put something on the bar it's like two for two or three frames if you pause it and like you know netflix doesn't let you do this very easily but if you pause it and like start it over and again you can see he's got something and it looks like a gun uh as he puts on there but the lang again the language of the film right it, 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 there's no indication that he's taken this gun at this point right he's just over there fumbling with the drinks you can't see his hands right so it just looks like he's putting stuff on the table and taking stuff off so it doesn't give you any sort of idea of, of, of what this is pretty cool to hide this right in the middle of your movie but the thing that bothers me the most about this is miles is such a smooth operator <laughs> like i know he's got this reality distortion field right uh, which i think is an interesting element of this movie where he can say something and everyone basically believes him but he the decision to kill duke happens so quickly and without any indication to you that miles is going through any sort of thought process he goes over to see duke he's like he's smiling at him he's like wow i'm so happy for you right he gives him a big hug and then he pulls the gun out starts fixing a drink comes over and poisons him there's no like it, it's so quick it's like uh, it, it, there's there's nothing like about him being like oh what should i do like he's not paralyzed he's never he never hesitates he never like there's never a, a moment of like contemplation about what he should do he's just immediately okay i'm gonna kill this guy now and he knows what to do and how to do it, it like uh, but this contradicts our our satisfying conclusion about miles which is that he's just like a, a impulsive idiot right but how so how is he pulling off these incredibly smooth, incredibly concise, incredibly efficient <laughs> murders? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, the first one, uh, his murder of Andy was not so efficient because sure. people saw him leaving the scene of the crime. But I, I get I understand what you're getting at here, because the whole the whole conceit of this movie is like something that appears to be complex that actually isn't. You know, Miles is himself a glass onion. And if you can see through all the uh, superficial layers, then it's obvious that he's a moron and that he's been kind of riding the backs of all these other people who are actually good at things. Uh, he's he's just uh, a figurehead and, and takes credit for those things. So, you know. He it is a little bit out of character for him to be also a very efficient killer, uh, unless that's just like it, that is also who he is. Uh, I don't know. It just seems out of place. It's it's again, it's I think having it both ways is probably a good way to describe this movie in general. I think that um, 
it's it's really fun to have this moment in here, right? Because it's it's so satisfying when you when someone points it out to you, and then because it's difficult to actually spot, but there are clues there. Um, it's fun to rewatch it and try to figure it out, right? But again, like this movie is like, like it's made to be memed. This is what Chad Colchin says on Dudesies. That all movies are now are made to be memes, just cut into tiny pieces and then put onto social media for people to consume. And this is another moment like that, right? It doesn't fit with the rest of the movie necessarily. It's just a fun little thing to put in there. And even doesn't matter if it contradicts your overall thesis, removed from context, it's fun and cool and makes people want to watch it again. Yeah, I've already seen the Benoit Blanc, uh, it's so stupid. And then Birdie being like, it's so stupid, it's brilliant. He's like, no, it's just stupid. Like I've already seen that as like a reaction video uh like straight f- hot off the presses a new meme oh man. yeah 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 all right um uh, i know it sounds like i'm annoyed and that's because i am but the result is not <laughs> annoyance like benjamin just mentioned while watching this movie the the result of watching all these things is just acceptance okay i guess we're doing this now i say to myself there are no whoa or oh now it makes sense moments instead each moment is taken in stride and moved past because every movie has to have a twist. It doesn't matter if it's earned or if it's set up. This is a mystery, so there must be a twist. So instead of the satisfying click of a puzzle solved, it is the bland, boring feeling of eating butterless popcorn. I guess my mouth is moving, but I have consumed nothing. But that's not, where the, that's not the end of my criticisms here. I want to talk about the more insufferable parts about this movie. And I want to talk about the movie's resolution. But first, I have to back up and talk about truth. Cast your mind back, listener, to the age old, the eons of, of, of yesteryear, 2016 and 2017. Trump was running and elected to office. Uh, do you remember how the media treated him? The, li- the liberal media spent all their efforts telling us that the truth mattered and that because Trump was a liar, he was unfit to be president. He's a liar and the truth will stop him in his tracks, they would say. If only we could tell the truth harder, except all of that was wrong. No, ma- no amount of truth-telling stopped the meme-in-chief from enacting his agenda. And when the media was caught telling a lie or misreporting something, they jumped down each other's throats. Because the truth matters, goddammit. Depending on who you are, this had two effects. If It made liberals, like me, fucking insane. And flushed me toward more radical solutions. It made reactionaries and conservatives buckle down even harder. But when it came time to decide between the truth and Trump, Trump won almost every time. In either case, the truth stopped mattering as much. It didn't matter if the election was stolen or if Q really is a high-ranking military figure or if Russia interfered with the election. What mattered more was that people believed it. But liberals still believe that the truth would set them free. That by saying, this is true, this is false, over and over, people will suddenly wake up and start caring. But it won't happen. It's not that truth is dead. It's that reality is no match for a powerful enough political project. Truth matters little if you can just rewrite history. This movie is supposedly a strike in the Inner Californian War, a a missile launched from Hollywood at Silicon Valley. It is a skewering of the elites and the billionaires who all, as Catwoman says in The Dark Knight Rises, thought you could live so large and leave so little for the rest of us. But is this effective criticism? I think this movie asks an important question, one that is it has no hope of answering. What does accountability look like for the extremely rich and powerful? 
Miles Braun doesn't lose all his money. He isn't killed or publicly shamed. Perhaps that will happen, but it is, that is not where the movie draws its karmic resolution. When the glass onion explodes and all of Miles' friends turn on him, this is when we were meant to feel justice is served. We were meant to look at Helen and say, she really did it to him, didn't she? I guess accountability is like when your friends don't like you anymore. <laughs> this, is, this is where the movie hangs its metaphorical hat. It hinges on this idea. If the right people tell the truth, then all our problems will be solved. Inherent here is the idea that powerful elites have too much control over our lives, but the movie's solution to this is a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun. If only the elites told the truth, if only they would turn on their rich friend and do the right thing. Keep in mind, Andy is shown to be righteous, noble, and smart. She deserved to be at the top, not Miles. If things had shaken out differently, it would be Andy throwing the parties of the glass onion, not Miles. But, you know, what about Benoit Blanc? Well, <laughs> let's talk about Benoit Blanc. Benoit Blanc is also an elite. He is the world's greatest detective. He is the liberal dream, a person who has power, but is disconnected from any incentive other than the truth. Again, the problem is not that there are elites. The problem is that they are not good people. If only they could sort the good people from the bad people, then we would have a just society. <laughs> ah, but Blanc, he's fun, isn't he? He has such a silly way of talking. He likes elaborate metaphors. He's kind of like Columbo, where he bumbles about, but still finds himself at the center of the truth. Listen, Daniel Craig, he's great. I, I think he's a great actor. He brings a lot of charisma to the screen, and he's fun to watch. But Blanc is nothing more than a meme. He's a liberal oracle, dispensing truth and wisdom that the other characters just aren't ready to hear. But, you know, we're ready to hear it. If he is someone <laughs> to embody on Twitter or to dress like for our Halloween, he's a Pez dispenser for witty aphorisms and elegant monologues. But what makes him interesting beyond his status and perception? How does he continue the legacy of the gentleman detective? Is this our Sherlock Holmes, our Hercule Poirot, our Lieutenant Columbo? Why is why are his mysteries so hollow, uh, buttressed by weighty casting budgets and non-linear storytelling? Is this really where we are? Nice use if, of buttressed. <laughs> thank you. If you uh, if you'll indulge me, let's be really cynical for a moment. Blanc is uh, let's of yes, let's begin. Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> Blanc is of course gay. Not because this gives some dimension to his character. It separates him from the normals. It gives him the victim status that liberals idolize. He can rise to the ranks and become as famous and elite as he wants, but he'll never escape the baggage of his identity. They will never accept you, Benoit, the liberals proclaim. Only we love the gays. Frustratedly, foolishly, the metaphor of the glass onion also applies to this movie. It feels like it's trying to say something, but it's hollow, tasteless, and forgettable. It's fancy dressing for liberal propaganda, and it absolutely is not worth talking about. Scathing. Absolutely <laughs> scathing. Um, I'll be honest, uh, just a quick note here. I didn't even realize Benoit Blanc was gay until I read your notes on this movie. Uh, looking back, I guess you're supposed to draw the conclusion from the fact that he has a like male roommate, but I never really thought about Benoit Blanc's like living situation until they had to address it because it's like, what was he doing during the pandemic? Um, but was this established in the first movie too? No, it was not. There's nothing, there's nothing to indicate one way or the other. But he's living with Hugh Grant, right? And uh, I, I believe there's, there's something in there that, that, that indicates like, 
oh, uh, when he's talking to his friends while he's playing Among Us or something, they 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 mention um, you know his partner essentially um, oh, by okay. by name. I don't know if they it, it, the implication is that he is. And there's one other thing here, which I've seen people laughing a lot about on Twitter, which is when he's getting the COVID uh, shot, right? Um, everyone else yeah. is like choking uh, while he does it, but he just like takes it in stride. Oh, um, brother. <laughs> um, yeah. And I guess that does go along with kind of what you're saying is that there's like making him gay all of a sudden and with no real it like reason out besides i guess for the covid shot uh is definitely like like a liberal uh virtue signaling signaling. you know like it's like okay good for you you did that but it's like uh, that does that really even matter uh at all well that, that goes along with the pattern of like the heroes of these stories right which are the minority women that are uh you know uh statedly nominally oppressed in some way Right. Um, right. And, and, and in this movie, similar to the first one, we do have our like minority working class hero who is the actual person who does the thing that resolves our situation. Like Benoit Blanc can, you know, carry the, the story forward, make sure that we're headed in the right direction towards truth. But he eventually can't cross the finish line he, on his own like based on his own uh morals or, or his code of ethics uh, you know his restriction to only enforce the law and nothing more uh re- makes it so that he can't actually resolve our situation and then so that's where we have helen who is the real hero of glass onion right she's a yeah. black third grade teacher from alabama she is as like poor and working class as you can be with with that job title um and she is the one who can actually come and like save the the situation to defeat the uh you know the rich who have taken so much right and and this mirrors marta in the first one too right both helen and um marta are are completely um devoid of flaw right they they are perfect people uh to the point where like marta can't even tell a lie right it's this (laughs) it's this like um exaggeration or like the epitome of the like the liberal um idol it's like oh the 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 perfect working class person right Uh, these these people are are um so virtuous because of their status um in our society right And, and it's only because of the unfair structure of our hierarchy that they aren't given their due but but you know, maybe we can fix. Maybe Benoit Blanc and his compatriots can fix this. Uh, this inequity. Um, it, it's I, actually funny because, like, uh, trying to think of like a counterexample. It's like, well, she is shown to be, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, she drinks a lot and starts like uh, kind. Yeah, she gets a little bit tipsy, and her because of that, it kind of compromises her ability to collect information after she gets that. She talks with Agatha and Agatha. Yeah, freaking the character from (laughs) WandaVision. After she speaks with Claire and Lionel, uh, you know, near the pool, she's like walking away and stumbling. And right before she walks away, she's like, okay, can you repeat all of that again? You know, because like she's seemingly losing it because she's had so much to drink at that point. Right, right. But, 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 
Benoit is so impressed with her ability to be a detective while drinking that he encourages her to drink more. It's like even this person is so righteous and so uh, ho- holistically good that uh, even adding some uh, poison to their system will only enhance that goodness. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. And um, so, I don't know. I think there's something to be said about them not having it just be Benoit, this world-famous detective who defeats the elite. It's like, well, really, the person who defeated him was working-class Andy over here. Uh, or <laughs> Helen literally <laughs> is working-class Andy. Working-class Andy. <laughs> Andy with an I. But, um, but at the same time, yeah, I, do, I, I understand where you're coming from, uh, which was uh, like with saying that they almost dehumanize their working class uh, person by not letting them be a person. They're just an idol to be uh, worshipped. They're a person who is beyond a person. They're above real people. Um, So I agree with you. I think this movie is definitely full of liberal sensibilities, enough to potentially tempt people who have conflicting political viewpoints to just turn it off during the opening (laughs) sequence. Like, it's like, it's so, uh, first of all, like, it was a little bit interesting to have a movie with masks, uh, because I think for the majority of media that has been released since the pandemic, they just try kind of skip over that portion of history. And while I think it's, goes along with some of the stuff that they're commenting on to at least have the pandemic be in this world. I think you also could have made this movie without masks or any, any sort of reference to the pandemic. It doesn't really play that large of a a part, but that's kind of a sidebar. Um, I do like the way they introduce their ensemble cast. If you can get through the, uh, the, the thick application of liberal sensibilities over all of it, you can, uh, it's kind of a fun way that they're all kind of cutting into each other and trying to solve these little puzzles and you're trying to do it with them. And it's every, everybody's getting all warmed up for the incoming mystery. Uh, it, it's, it's just entertaining to watch. And, uh, you know, each one of them represents this view of some sort of archetype in modern culture. Uh, like we start with our female progressive candidate, Claire, uh, you know, and she very prominently has a stay at home husband who's like looking kind of like a dad. Disheveled. And so, <laughs> right. And it's like, th- this is, you know, you would be used to seeing, you know, maybe if this movie was made 50 years ago, you would have a male politician with his like, uh, you know, smoking hot trophy wife and now we have the progressive female candidate who's got her like dumpy looking husband uh but she also really comes so far right but this is also kind of like a critique of uh you know the you could say maybe specific candidates or you could just say the democratic party at large because they purport to have these beliefs but they're really only representing their donors and in this case Claire is representing Miles. She'll do whatever Miles says, even if she personally disagrees with it, uh, and she knows that her constituents disagree with it, right? So that's that's pretty solid. We've got that. That seems to exist, and that's what they're commenting on. They're saying, this is a bad person. Then we've got Birdie, and Birdie represents the conservative celebrity. Maybe a stand-in for Gina Carano, but just, I think, celebrities that liberals don't like in general, I think, is who she's supposed to stand in for. She's scandalous and unapologetic, ditzy and crazy. I mean, it is... They're pretty brutal at attacking or assassinating her character in this movie um, because she they impl- heavily imply that she did blackface and also uh, that she uses racial slurs on Twitter. So it's like, oof, <laughs> that is tough to 
uh you know it's like there's no there's not a lot of two ways about blackface um <laughs> so it's like that's, that's a tough position to put her in she's always getting in trouble with the media but she's clear in her reactions to the outrage that she she thinks it's just the woke mob uh she blames the world for going crazy and it's not her fault for not thinking before she speaks and of course we have this bit of uh knowledge that's dropped on us by uh our our detect our detective I'm a truth teller. Some people can't handle it. It's a dangerous thing to mistake speaking without thought for speaking the truth. Don't you think? Are you calling me dangerous? We'll, we'll see. I think, like, all of her flaws can really be summed up as just being stupid, right? And, and this... This line also works with that, where she doesn't even recognize that he's insulting her, right? He's just like, she's like, oh, I'm dangerous now. Like, that, that's what it is. And I think this kind of goes along with the, uh, I think a lot of celebrities feel this way, where it's really hard to separate genuine criticism from just people being mean, you know? I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but when Shane Dawson was doing his documentary stint and he was interviewing Jake Paul, this was something that came up where uh, one of the last episodes, uh, Shane shows Jake um, a video by Nerd City, which I remember very clearly, which was about how Jake Paul was marketing his stuff to kids and how he was basically violating all of these protection laws that had been put in place to like, keep people from advertising to kids. Um, and it was a very well put together, like very cohesive argument. But of course, Jake dismissed it immediately because he's like, well, lots of people hate me, right? I think a lot of people feel this way. Um, when you get to a certain point, the, you don't want to wade through all of the people, shit people say about you, you know, because that, that's just not good for your mental health. So you'll just wash everything away as, oh, they just don't like me. Oh, they just don't like me, right? I think Birdie fits into that category as well. Um, that's certainly what I was thinking of when she was kind of describing herself, right? But yeah, I think a lot of the, all this stuff that she does, right, is like, is bad, but it's all kind of stems from her just lack of like self-awareness or um, knowledge or, you know, just, just, like, just general ignorance about everything, um, more so than like a malicious thing. Right. It's like a criticism of not necessarily being a bad person, but it's just being ignorant and not caring. Right. Uh, that that is really at hand here. And and to to go back on your talking about like internet comments on stuff, uh I definitely understand why you would just ignore everything everyone says on the internet at a certain point because some people just are uh, this is not new, but like some people are just terrible. I uh like right as we record this, uh the 49ers are like on a playoff run and like everything's going well. And I like I was watching a live stream after the game of like press conferences with the players, and the comment section is just fans of this team or alleged fans of this team tearing each other to shreds, disagreeing about like things that about a team that just won a big game. And it's like, oh, I don't need this in my life. Like, I, yeah. I like, why would anybody look at this at all? This is a cesspool of uh, anybody who is willing to degrade themselves enough to participate in this conversation has, has already uh, proven that they're not worth listening to. So sometimes um, while I I'm, get that. <laughs> sometimes while I'm scrolling through social media, I get the feeling that I'm looking for something. And often the thing I end up like finding is 
something that makes me upset. <laughs> like yes. I'm just I'm just scrolling till I find something that makes me upset, and I it's really hard to like justify continuing to use these sites if that's all it comes up for. You know, you've heard of boobs law, right? Uh, something you find something in the last place you look for it, right? This can also yeah. be used vice versa, where you, um, you, the last place you look for something is where you find it. Uh, so if you, if, if you stop looking at it, um, uh, what you stopped looking, what made you stop looking is what you ended up finding. So. Yeah, it's um, definitely, <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's something that I try to notice when it's happening and then go in the opposite direction but that's not always super easy but okay but back to glass onions uh let's let's move on to duke and duke is honestly it, it's it feels like this movie was written like right before it came out like it, it like or sorry <laughs> right before this current moment you know yeah, like yeah, not yeah. back when it was written back in like 2021 it feels like it, it was written like the the script was written they filmed over the weekend and then it came out uh because duke represents internet men's rights activists which I maybe I was just blind to it, but I did not feel like they were as big of a thing. They definitely were a thing, but they weren't as mainstream and and kind of omnipresent online as they are now. Um, you know, Duke is an anti-feminist. He's gun-toting. He appeals to nature in like ridiculous ways, where he was saying that yes, like I he, love that. <laughs> he he you know says the elemental truths that go back billions of years. That's why men are like nature made men to dominate the western workplace like the, that hilarious uh, he also obviously is big in working out he's like built you know that kind of thing uh motorcycles cars extreme sports in general saying things like the breastification of america to like kind of criticize the direction of uh, american culture um he's also clearly selling supplements that are called apexosity uh and you know he, he just kind of checks all those boxes but at the same time, so, so that is just like, I feel one-to-one -one just showing exactly like a uh, kind of caricature of a men's rights activist online. But they to criticize him, they make him seem like an overgrown child. Uh, you know, his house, first of all, he still lives with his mom, but like his house is strewn with toys that are all over the place and they're not toys for little kids but they're basically toys for an overgrown child like he has uh, paddles and kayaks and and skiing equipment and stuff that's just strewn all over the place his gamer chair is sitting right in the center of the living room like he's he's just supposed to be a big kid and then beyond that he's further emasculated by being like within a consensual cuckolding like situation so i i feel like they really don't hold uh they don't hold anything back with trying to make him look the opposite of what men's like rights activists try to push forward yeah um no i think i think uh, i was gonna wait to say this until you were done with all of them but i think all of these are pretty good satires of like actual people um and like and without being super pointed without being about a specific person but just like the kind of people that that exist um and yeah i think i think duke's uh, men's right stuff is is great i really like it when he says no jimmy kimmel i don't hate boobs it's so funny it's like <laughs> it's like of course this would happen of course you would you would end up in this situation um and they, everything from the yeah from the just like over tatted just like you know completely obsessed with fitness right to the um consensual cuckolding is all 
stereotypical of the guys in this sphere, honestly. They, they, they don't have a good grasp of themselves or relationships. It seems like Duke actually has a goal, which is like become like a, a media like figure, um, which uh, may be more like maybe more uh, credit than is worth giving to some of the people that exist in real life. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's like, I, I, they also kind of get that like twisted over masculinity portion of it where he's being criticized for not liking boobs where it's like, you know, I've heard some pretty wild takes. I don't know how mainstream they are, but it's like having sex with women is gay. Yes. You know, because it's like, you should I have sex that. with men because that's more manly. You know? I, <laughs> I, I agree with that. <laughs> I think having sex with women is gay. Oh, <laughs> uh, so uh so that's duke and then we have lionel so i think lionel represents something that i'm seeing more often in progressive media and it's kind of like a a change to what we're used to seeing because i think a lot of times scientists are just kind of upheld as like you know they know what's best and then that makes them good. Like they know what truth is, therefore they should be listened to. And that's not to say that there aren't like bad scientists that are motivated by money or something else that are portrayed in popular media. But I think this kind of like scientist with a like heart of gold that knows what's right, but also decides not to do it uh, is just apathetic uh, or, or doesn't stop somebody who is evil from doing something based on what they, you know, what the scientist allows them to do is something that's becoming a bigger part of like popular culture. Like he knows that clear is bad, but he doesn't, he, he has double thoughts about it, but he ultimately does what Miles wants him to do because that's his main goal is to appease his boss. Um, and it's kind of reminds me of look up where we had scientists who were trying to do what was right, but ultimately ineffective in bringing about the kind of action that was needed to avoid calamity. Don't look up, you mean? Yes. Oh, sorry. Look up. <laughs> yeah, don't look up. Um, yeah, I, I think this is a, this is a really good a pattern that you, you notice here because it's, it's similar to the scientists in Avatar and Avatar 2. Um, and I think this, this, this reminds me of is when I was first learning about the allegory of the cave in high school, um, I don't remember who it was. Probably was my philosophy teacher. Uh, he said that, uh, you know, as everyone is exiting the cave, right, as they are dissuaded of reality as it was and are, are headed toward the actual light of the good, right, toward reality as it actually is, not just representations or shadows of reality, um, the philosophers make it out of the cave, but engineers make it to the edge and then head back in to make life more comfortable inside the cave. Um, Ooh. And this is, this is you know, similar to what Lionel is doing here, right? He can see the truth, right? But that knowledge doesn't give him any moral authority. It only gives him um, a reason to drink, as uh, Jamaica, what's his name, says in uh, uh, Avatar. Yeah, and it's... Um... Yeah, I think when you talk about things like, I don't know, pressing issues like global warming specifically, kind of like we're saying and don't look up, like this is seemingly becoming a more and more relevant thing to be like, okay, the people who actually know what's going on have a responsibility here. Like we can't just uh, look past that anymore. Uh, apathy is actually malicious in this situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, th I mean, the Exxon, for example, 
had, was doing climate research in like the 70s. And they found they had ex- put quote, I think it was quoted as extremely accurate uh, models for what was going to happen in the future. And they were like, OK, how can we use this to make money? <laughs> Not like, oh, uh, let's pivot to a more greener future or like let's warn people about what we're doing to the planet. It's like they had very, very smart people, some of some of the probably the best climatologists in the world at the time working on this problem for them to enrich themselves. Right. Instead of like saving the rest of us. Um, And I think you'll find that's true for a lot of these crises we have in our world. Think about the fentanyl crisis or the opioid epidemic. Right. Uh, Those. Drugs were invented by very smart people um, working for corporations that uh, have no, um, no qualms about doing things that are morally apprehensible. All right. And, and finally, we have Miles Braun, which might be the most apt uh, depiction of all of these kind of archetypes, because Miles Braun is definitely Elon Musk, but he's also successful CEOs in general. Uh, We're supposed to believe that he's some eccentric tech genius because he's rich and successful. Uh, You know, it's almost concluded upon learning about him that he's already, he's, he's just completely brilliant. And he's able to hide his actual stupidity in plain sight because we jump to the conclusion that he's brilliant because of his status as an ideas guy. Uh, one of those ideas we hear about straight off the bat is Crypto Kids. Oh my uh, god! Which is an app. And if you know uh, anything about NFTs, <laughs> then you know how ridiculous of an idea that is. Making money off NFTs that are being sold to kids is not visionary or disruptive. It's scamming children. It's taking money from babies. Okay, like it's it's uh but it's also something that sounds smart and if you don't know what you're talking about would actually make you think that he's a visionary or something. It's like, "Oh, he made money off of NFTs. Smart guy. Not morally bankrupt uh con man, right?" Um he uses a fax machine instead of a cell phone and he says that it's because he likes analog. Is that supposed to be cool or smart? It's actually stupid and leads to his downfall when Benoit finds the email that Lionel faxed to him that showed that he actually did know about the letter that Andy had, the red letter. His reputation is built on taking credit for work that other people did. Andy built Alpha. He constantly pays for other people to do things that he takes credit for. The bong was composed by Philip Glass. The mystery was written by Gillian Flynn. Like he, he's, uh, you know, he has the money to get the best people and then their successes become his successes, even though he contributed, you know, nothing, uh, you know, potentially he sends cryptic faxes to Lionel who turns them into profitable ideas. He wants to become the guy who brings about the sustainable fuel of the future and he's willing to destroy the world to do it. He dresses like Steve jobs and, and he Zuckerberg's Andy out of the company. He represents big tech CEOs, modern day demigods of our world, which I think is a very timely antagonist to have in a movie like this. Yeah, I think that it's fun to, you know, compare him to someone like Elon Musk. There are a lot of definitely a lot of similarities, but I do think that the companies that Elon Musk has is like a founder of, right? Quote unquote founder. um, He... Uh, the people that run those companies have their own anti-reality distortion field set up, 
there's reports of like people at SpaceX and Tesla basically whose job is to insulate or yeah, like isolate Musk away from the actual operations that are going on and just say, <laughs> hey, when he comes in and says, hey, I got an idea. They're like, sounds great. We'll work on that. And then, uh, you know, just like pat him on the back and say, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. And, <laughs> and, and, and let him like think that he's running the company while they're like, actually handle business uh as 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 it goes I mean, this was this was true of trump the closer trump was to the actual operation of his business the worse the business did um if he was further away if he just had his name on it then that it was usually relatively successful because the people that were running it actually knew what they were doing um so the fact that he surrounded himself with these people right uh and that they all like kind of like suck up to him i think that's way more of like a celebrity um like interaction with someone like musk than it is actual people that work with him i think that the uh the people like that he surrounds himself with are are not like this necessarily right and and maybe like that's happening over time maybe he's filtering out all of the all the people that will tell him no and and there's only yes men left you know there's this kind of a natural order of things right as he becomes more insufferable less people want to work with him um but i do think that it, like him having these friends like doesn't really match up for me because like the interaction isn't quite as genuine as i would expect it to be between like someone of this caliper and like the people that actually work for him if that makes sense sure yeah, yeah, like mixing the fact that they're friends and business associates, I think is yeah, it's kind of different. Because I, I, the first time I ever heard Elon Musk speak was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and it was kind of a similar situation to this, where it was like celebrity talking to celebrity, and Joe Rogan's reverence for Elon Musk's massive intellect was all I needed to be convinced that he was a genius off off top, right? I didn't even have to evaluate it for myself because he was so clearly brilliant. Otherwise, why would Joe Rogan's jaw be like, uh, you know, slamming to the floor so hard? Yes, exactly. That's like, it's it's those people that come in from the peripheral, right? That show up later that are like, oh, you must be great, right? Not the people that were there from the beginning necessarily, right? Right, right. Yeah, they, if anything, they would see through him because when Birdie's talking about how he... Uh, talking about miles used to be kind of putty in her hands when she was bigger than him in like a famous way uh she's like i i wish that it was still like that but it seems like her reverence towards him has changed because of his status uh which you know if she really knew him she wouldn't need to but i guess if anybody would be blind to it would be birdie sure um, the other thing is like a clown i don't I, i i strain against this idea that like these people are actually idiots. Like, I'll I'll give you Miles Braun is probably an idiot, but I don't think Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Trump even are really stupid. I think that they are very talented at a specific thing, and perhaps they believe that because they're talented at one thing, they're talented at everything, which is a classic smart person like foible. But it's, <laughs> um, I, I actually do think that these guys have like some talent at something and have developed skills about something. I mean, just look at the way that Elon has manipulated his own stock, right? His, his, his salary is tied directly to the price of Tesla stock. So him constantly, like for years, pumping it up, right? Way above what it was worth 
um, and making all these short sellers like lose their freaking minds um, was <laughs> uh, was is, is a genuine talent, right? He didn't just get lucky. He was doing it over and over again deliberately. So, like, uh, you have to you have to give them some credit here, and I. I, I hate that like this movie comes down and like he's an idiot, right? Because it doesn't solve the problem at all. It's just like, oh, I guess I guess the world's actually worse than we thought it was. <laughs> right. Well, and I think it also just makes the satire not hit as hard because they're like, okay, we're gonna have him be just hyperbolically stupid, which is something that people say about Elon Musk in in real life. But then they just ignore like so. So the people who do like Elon Musk or might think of him as this transcendent multi-talented genius they'll just ignore it just like everything else uh every time you make a claim that's so ridiculous about how stupid elon musk is it's it only serves to calcify the position of the people who stand elon musk and think that he's going to bring about the the future of humanity with uh Neuralink and and living on mars so it like it's yeah it kind of misses the mark and if you're trying to actually uh effectively uh express how you feel about these types of people or specifically elon musk because you're just you're doing a very like a real caricature of him but at the same time i feel like events that if i feel like this was supposed to just be generic tech ceo but because of things like elon musk's purchase of twitter and all of the kind of chaos that's happened because of that now it's like oh this is elon musk even if it wasn't specifically supposed to be elon musk which i think is slightly more of an indictment on musk himself than this than this character Again, but yeah, but again, Twitter is not reality. <laughs> it's Twitter is um, uh, an exaggeration of an exaggeration. It's people one-upping each other each time, right? When someone says, oh, Musk seems kind of dumb here, everyone interprets that as, uh, uh, if you want to get you know likes on your tweet, you say, he's the stupidest person that's ever existed, right? It, it yes. just becomes the, uh, it just becomes hyperbole uh, over and over again. Um, so like your interpretation of, Musk, if you spend a lot of time on Twitter, is that he's just getting dumber every day. Like, like he's like <laughs> his brain matter is leaking out of his ears uh, as like Twitter like ravages his mind, like some sort of mind eating parasite. But it's not like that's, <laughs> that that's not really what's Twitter happening. Is, though. <laughs> it is, but it's not really what's what's happening, right? It, it's it's just a way for people to feel better about themselves. Okay, well, that's enough about Miles Braun and Elon Musk. Let's let's move on to. Uh, the mystery of this film, because I have to give this movie credit. If you're super sharp, super perceptive, and look at the right places at the right time, I do believe this movie gives you everything you need to be able to solve this mystery at the same time as Benoit Blanc. If you pay attention, and now this, I'm going to be dropping a lot of things you, that you could have seen, but potentially didn't. If you pay attention, you can see Miles take the gun. We talked about that. Uh, you can see it in his pants when he's walking away, like it poking through his sweater kind of. Uh, and you can see him place it behind the bar. Then you can see him hand his drink to Duke. And I think this is the most obvious in plain sight thing. I noticed this the first time I watched it. I was like, that was weird. Oh, really? He just handed his drink to Duke. And uh, like watching this with my girlfriend, I was like, why did he do that? And then immediately Duke dies. And I'm like, Miles killed him. Obviously. <laughs> like that, they showed it to us, right? Um, which didn't lead me to... Like I, I still was in the dark, but I I felt like that one was very out in the open, and uh, you know I still think people probably missed it. Even I definitely with, did. I definitely uh, missed cutting it. Back. And I, and I was thinking it's interesting that you that you came to that conclusion because I was theorizing that if you saw it, you would have thought that somebody poison tried to poison Miles 
by putting something in the bar cart, right? Because that's mm. clearly Miles's drink. Even if he hands it to Duke, right? It's still like I don't know. It, it feels like there's something there. But but no, you're right. He does. He does like it is a weird handoff, right? So it does seem yes. like he's trying to hide or something. Yeah, I I. I wasn't paying enough attention to it to to see that the first time. But yeah, they do point it out deliberately. So Yeah, yeah. And I, my other thing that I thought with that is that Duke was in on it and maybe Duke wasn't actually dead. Mm. Like it was supposed to be like a ploy that he was doing. I don't know. It was just like, but I, that one is, some of these other ones are kind of hard to see. That one is very easy uh, to see. And then right after Duke dies, you can see Miles sit down where Duke was previously seated and his his phone is sitting out there. It cuts away for like one cutaway. Then it comes back to him. It's still, he's still sitting there. The phone is gone. So it's, it's like, okay, he definitely has the phone. Not to mention, much easier to notice, you can see the phone in his back pocket for the rest of that scene. And it's been made very clear to us at this point that Miles does not have a cell phone. So that would be another thing that you could pick up on uh, to, to notice. Something is a little uh, different. Yeah, and, and the way that he here. walks around, too, he mostly keeps his back to the rest of the characters. There's yes. a couple of ones where he turns around, but when they all come toward Duke to like investigate and like try to look for his, his gun and his phone, Miles like scrambles out of there backwards uh, so that right. no one can see um, behind him. Which, you know, you, at that point, he thinks somebody's trying to kill him, so sure. he, it, it makes there's, sense there's that he would want to keep yeah, yeah. them in front of him. But yeah, it's, but it is absolutely there. And then when the lights are out, you can see him with the gun when he calls out for Andy. The way he twists his body, you can clearly see just the barrel of the gun in his right hand. And it's like in the dark, you're kind of curious what's going on. It's hard to see. But once you know to look for a gun, you can, it's very clearly there. It's all in plain sight. Um, so I, I, def- I think it's definitely possible for you to know that Miles is acting sussy before they go back to the beginning and reveal that Andy is actually Helen. Uh, and the, the last thing that is said before the flashback is this. Will you explain it to us then, detective? No. I can peel back the layers. I can take it to a point. But what lies at the center... Only one person can tell us who killed Cassandra Brand. To me, this means that it has to be one person. And that's important moving forward once we learn the motivations of our other characters. Um, After it's revealed that Andy is actually Helen, the movie strongly suggests that the killer is one of the four shitheads and definitely not miles and one of the like there's there's many ways that they do this but one of the strong ways that they do this is benoit says it would be too stupid if it was miles uh, through this quote what about miles what if he just did it well we can't rule it out but miles brown is not an idiot to risk committing murder after a very public court case with the possibility of that email of andy's coming to light would be an exceedingly stupid thing to do Especially if someone was willing to do it for him. So they don't want us to think it's Miles. Next, we spend like 30 minutes of runtime going on about the motivations of the other characters, concluding that all four had equal opportunity and motivation to want to kill Andy. It could be any of them or all of them, and it can't be all of them, so it was probably none of them. Hmm. Within this whole sequence of revelations about our shitheads, there are a couple details that actually matter. 
Lionel forwarding the email, the, the email to Miles, or sending it to his fax machine, rather, and Miles almost running over Duke as he was leaving Andy's. Um, once Miles was aware of the letter, he becomes suspect number one since he has the most to lose from the red letter being revealed. And the fact that he passed Duke while Duke was headed to the house puts him at the scene of the crime. So I think at that point, you could combine the fact that we saw him being a sussy baka in the first half of the movie. Uh, and there it is. You've solved it. I, I like that the murder mystery kind of hints at the simplicity of all this. The glass onion is a metaphor for the mystery as well as for Miles Braun. And unfortunately, you're starting to convince me that's also a metaphor for the movie itself. Uh, it appears to be wildly complex, but it's really simple and in plain sight. Miles Braun appears to be a wild genius, but in reality, he is an idiot, and an idiot would kill Andy to shut her up. This mystery appears to be complex, but it really couldn't be any simpler. Uh, Miles killed Andy because she had something that would destroy his reputation. No one else necessarily needs to be considered. It's obvious. But you can't be blamed for falling for the distraction. Uh, the ensemble cast was very interesting, and everybody put on a great performance. Not to mention, it took up a whole lot of runtime. I was a little bit frustrated with this movie after realizing that a lot of this movie is spent on backstory for our four shitheads that ultimately was just misdirection. Right. Um, but I feel like this movie kind of gets a get out of jail free card with the whole glass onion theme where they're like, you can't have the, gla the glass onion theme doesn't work unless you have a bunch of meaningless layers, right? That's the whole point. So I guess I can give them a, a pass on that. And they do play a critical role in Andy's backstory here, right? Because she, uh, the reason why she's so desperate and why like the napkin matters at all and all this stuff is because they all turned on her in the court case. Right. So they they're sort of they've sort of become a monolith right uh, near the end, even though they all kind of have distinct uh, features. Um, but they yeah, they, they all sort of kind of work together as one unit um, of both in Andy's like uh, the betrayal of Andy and then the turning on Miles at the end. Right. And I think after talking to you about this, I'm a little bit less bullish on my um being confident that you could solve this because while you could see all of those things going on with miles before the flashback the way that the story is told those things could easily be updated and it's like miles stole the gun because him and birdie had talked about something and, and birdie was like if i get that gun i'm gonna totally kill you miles so like miles had to get the gun and then like what you didn't see was after you see miles with the gun somebody else gets the gun and then they shoot like it's like so right, like, I do. The, I feel the, more flimsy the, about it. The knife is missing, right? And then later, like Birdie is holding it and stuff. Like I know the knife isn't used or anything, but there's lots of little things in there where like it's supposed to keep you from uh, keep you from really paying attention, which is which is fine, honestly. Like I'm expecting that from a mystery. I'm okay with having all this like random stuff happening, right? But it's um it's still it's, know, it's still unsatisfying for reasons I've already explained. Right, right. Um, so what, one thing I did really like about the way that this movie was kind of set up is, again, this idea of um, disruption. And um, Miles Braun sort of sets up his own downfall with his disruptor's monologue, um, which, is, which is this right here. If you want to shake things up, you start with something small. You break a norm or an idea or a convention, some little business model, but you go with things that people are kind of tired of anyway. Everybody gets excited. 
because you're busting up something that everyone wanted broken in the first place. That's the infraction point. That's the place where you have to look within yourself and ask, am I the kind of person who will keep going? Will you break more things? Break bigger things? Are you willing to break the thing that nobody wants you to break? Because at that point, people are not gonna be on your side. They're gonna call you crazy. They're gonna say you're a bully. They're gonna tell you to stop. Even your partner will say, you need to stop. Because as it turns out, nobody wants you to break the system itself. But that is what true disruption is. And that is what unites all of us. We all got to that line and crossed it. See? Yeah, yeah. So, disruptors. All of us. Which I do want to say, that is a great... I loved the way that this was delivered by Edward Norton. I thought his performance was really great. Um, but this, whether you think it was convincing or not, it definitely is the blueprint for how Helen ends up defeating Miles in the end. She starts to break something small, the glass in her hand, and then starts smashing more and more things as uh, you know, bigger and bigger pieces of glass of leading up to the knight in armor glass statue to smashing the grand piano that was made out of glass. Uh, and then she ends up smashing the biggest thing, which was the glass onion itself when she actually blows up uh, the whole place. Oh, and one more thing, though. Because she destroys the Mona Lisa. Oh, well. right, right, yeah. And then, and then ultimately blows up Mona Lisa as well, or burns Mona Lisa, um, which is also like a poetic way to finish, uh, you know, Miles Braun's story because he always wanted to be mentioned. Like he said it such, in such an ambiguous way too. He's like, I want to be mentioned in the same breath as Mona Lisa forever. And it's like, well, now you will because everyone will know how it got destroyed. Uh, so I thought that was, that was like a satisfying way to, to you know, set up and pay off those lines from Miles Braun. There are three things I want to, I want to mention after this quote. First thing is that I feel personally attacked by this movie's uh, um, <laughs> pointing out that Miles uses the wrong words at times because I definitely <laughs> do that. I definitely I think I've already done that a couple times in this podcast. Um, <laughs> second thing is that I had this tweet from Elon Musk um, that this reminded me of, which I will read for you now. He said, um, this was uh, on December 2nd last year, you know Twitter is being fair when extremists on the far right and far left are simultaneously upset. Twitter aims to serve center 80% of people who wish to learn, laugh, and engage in reasoned debate. So uh, as Miles says, uh, when everyone's upset with you, that's when you know you're doing something right. Elon Musk says, <laughs> when, uh, when everyone's upset with me, that's how I know I'm doing something right. Uh, pretty good stuff. <laughs> um, the third thing I want to mention is uh as Nietzsche said god is dead uh i think now today philosophy is dead and i want to talk briefly about uh effective altruism do you know about effective altruism uh is this like one of those new jargon terms like the, along the lines of like quiet quitting and like other like redefinitions of something that already exists not exactly it's sort of a um it's it, it it's got like its origins in the right place like it's it's supposed to be something that's really uh uh like a, an effective way of thinking about charity but it's um been co-opted by 
the ultra wealthy as an excuse for them not to pay taxes. Um, so I believe this was, <laughs> I don't remember exactly who this started with, but there's a couple of uh, major figures. One of them is William McCaskill. Um, and basically the idea is that uh, if you want to help the most amount of people, then the best thing for you to do is have enough money to give to charity so that they can um, do this. There's a book called What We Owe the Future uh, that talks about uh, this idea as well. So it's it's a simple utilitarianism argument, which is the idea like if you it, like what responsibility do you have to someone that's like bleeding out right in front of you versus someone that's like dying of war crimes in another country, right? Like are you know according to utilitarianism both of these lives are equal right so like which one do you have responsibility to save and like how can you save the most amount of people right like should you dedicate your time and effort toward like a a, a charity like or should you give a million dollars to that charity so that they can do more right it's like it's sort of a um like a, a balancing act uh, in a way saying like, what, what does the most good here? And in a capitalist system, you know, money does the most good. Therefore, if you make a lot of money and then donate all of that money or most of it or whatever, um, you will have done the most good possible. But, you know, the road to getting to the super wealthy, well, it doesn't really matter what you do because this has been tied up with this other like new philosophy called long-termism, which is basically that um, we have a duty to save people in the future, right? The more people we save today, the more people will be in the future that we can save in the future. So if we set things up now to be good later, we'll have um, like done our part to ensure uh, people in the future have good life, right? Which is become more important than saving people today. So what this leads to is you can uh, justify basically any behavior uh, to make yourself ultra wealthy so that when you get to the point, so, so that you can eventually get to the point where you have enough money to save people in the future that, don't, that aren't burned yet, right? Um, <laughs> and it doesn't matter how many people you, you know, maim, murder, or kill on your way there because what you're doing is, is going to outweigh all of those crimes, basically. Um, yes, this is, that this sounds is the, mighty convenient. Yes, it is. Um, so I, th I think it's clear to, I think it's important to say that, um, uh, effective altruism was started as a, uh, idea kind of in somebody's head before anybody had, before this guy or anybody else in his like little group had any money, right? It was something that they were going to pledge to do in the future. And I think it was meant to be something good. It was about like maximizing your donations to various charities and stuff which you know i think is a, a good thing to do and i think looking into the charities you 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 are donating to and you know um even having a hand in how they use that money may be a a good thing for people to do but uh this when tied together with this other thing right and and when used as an excuse to make as much money as possible uh you can literally do it whatever you want this is the uh the philosophy that guided Sam Bankman-Fried to uh, start FTX, 
and uh, Alameda Research, actually. Um, ironically, ending up bankrupting tons and tons of people in the process, really making people's lives hell uh, uh, and on his quest to make people's lives better. So great stuff. So I, I, whenever somebody expresses any sort of like, oh, I believe in this philosophy. Oh, I believe in this value to me. Uh, I, I always return back to um, what um, uh, uh, Idris Elba's character said in Suicide Squad, which is that people just do whatever they want and make excuses for it later. Um, yeah, philosophy is dead. Uh, do good without um, having to justify it. Okay, well, that is going to bring us to the end of our overall section. And now we'll go over to our cool Easter eggs. Joey, what have you got? got two quick ones first is a book that andy finds the um, napkin inside of it's called the innovator's dilemma by clayton christensen i have not read this book but according to the brief uh, summary on google from wikipedia it says when new technologies cause great firms to fail uh, first published in 1997 is the best known work of the harvard professor and businessman clayton christensen it expands on the concept of disruptive technologies a term he coined in a 1995 article, Disruptive Technologies Catching the Wave. Basically, this is about um, how you can, uh, like, uh, companies can invent something that makes them go out of business. Uh, But I think the word (laughs) disruption here plays a large role. I can see why Ryan Johnson used it as a prop in his movie. Right, yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's also a business jargon word that kind of typifies business jargon words where it can kind of be twisted to mean whatever you want it to mean, you know, to fit whatever, uh, you know, kind of attitude you want to put out there as what your business style really is. You know, it's uh, because if you looked at that napkin, I actually thought this was hilarious. Like, did you actually stare at the napkin and see what it like had written on it? Like the genius idea that spawned alpha? No, I didn't. It was just a bunch of meaningless tech. It's like business streamlined opportunities, like scalability, and then like circled. You know, it's it's like this is all. Which it didn't matter. We didn't need a good reason, but it's 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 almost like a parody of itself. This like business idea was just a napkin where somebody wrote, you know, synergize and uh, you know, uh, market research. Teamwork. It makes the dream work. Right. <laughs> Uh, okay, yeah. I only have one Easter egg, and I don't really think it's all that insightful. I just wanted to point out for uh, anybody listening to this, maybe in the future who forgot, uh, Benoit Blanc plays Among Us in this movie, and uh, he sucks at it, which uh, <laughs> made me feel better about how bad I am at Among Us. Why do you think he's bad at Among Us? He says it's because it's stupid. He's bad at things that are stupid. <laughs> That's um, right. So that was why a also either. <laughs> yeah <laughs> um which also kareem abdul jabbar was playing with him uh which i'm not sure if there's if the other people are celebrities i didn't recognize them um but it just kind of reminds me that this movie again is trying to have it both ways where they're like uh oh, vapid celebrity culture but also kareem abdul jabbar playing among us you know it's it's uh and also oh yeah this one i didn't get at all because uh birdie is having a party during in may of 2020 something that obviously would 
at this point be seen as a political opinion is like whether or not you should be having a party with that many people in may of 2020 and um yo-yo ma is there <laughs> and uh i don't know if yo-yo ma truly understands the light that he is being portrayed as like being one of these rich celebrities who didn't give a shit about like following the like rules during covid uh to be able to eat pizza and comment on the music that they were listening right, to right. out of the box it was cute though um, uh, yeah, he was great. <laughs> it's just uh, the context. It's like, hey, what are you doing here, Yo-Yo Ma? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, the Glass Onion, the title, is actually stripped from a um, Beatles song called Glass Onion. Uh, Ryan Johnson, while he was writing this movie, he was looking for a title, and he searched for his in his like iPod or I guess his iPhone or whatever for songs that started with the word glass, and he found Glass Onion. Um, which is the Beatles song. And uh, apparently this song was written by Lennon to be confusing on purpose. He said, that line was thrown in there just to confuse everyone a bit more. Lennon explained later. It would have been the Fox Terrier's Paul. He's referring to the Walrus's Paul, uh, which is a line of the thing. I mean, it's just a bit of poetry. I was just having a laugh because there's been so much gobbledygook about Sergeant Pepper. Play it backwards and stand in your head and all of that. This is, uh, I think this is actually from a, Rolling Stone article, but I found it in Esquire. Anyway, um, Lennon is dead, and so are the rest of the authors. So regardless of authorial intention, it's up to me to decide what to glean from this movie. Um, <laughs> if, if, if the lesson is there is no lesson, then uh, Ryan Johnson can go stuck, stick a glass onion up his ass, because honestly, I'm trying, to, I'm trying my best out here. Um, <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's frustrating, because I think there's actually a several songs that, by the Beatles that, that fall into this category. I think um, Come Together, I think also uh, was explicitly written to be uh, impossible to decipher. Um, and I, I think that this is stupid, honestly. I, I'm okay with like a artist making a nonsense song, right? But to, to reject the idea that there, like, that there isn't anything worth studying in it, is, is, it misses the entire point of what you're doing, right? There are reasons to study the Beatles and to study their music and to study their lyricism. There's a reason why they're, they're, they were so successful at the time that they were. And it's worth looking at that and being and seeing if there's something we can understand about where we're going in the future and what that meant in the past, right? Regardless of what the, um, you know, what they're trying to say, right? The fact that they said it at all is indicative of a certain mindset or of a certain, like, feeling. So, like, this idea that, like, oh, it's it's not possible to decipher what i meant here is these these words are nonsense is is simply um being a rock in a stream right you're you're not actually going to change anything all you're doing is giving more things for people to talk about so uh, i don't know i just find this frustrating and um and silly and uh anyone who says that this movie the point of this movie is not to look at it closely um misses the point of art in general in my opinion I agree with that. And it also reminds me of the way that Regina Spector constructs her lyrics because she has said that she specifically does them in kind of a like whimsical slash nonsensical way. But her intention is for her listeners to draw the conclusion. Uh, she might she's yes. like talked about how she has her own interpretations of her own art. But the reason why she tries to you know, some of them are definitely clearer than others, but her mindset behind that is that she's opening it up for interpretation. There is something there. You just have to find it. Even if the thing that you find isn't 
put there by Regina, uh, which I think is really cool. It makes her music have real uh, replayability to me because there are songs that have been meaningless to me until I reach a, the the intersection of those weird lyrics and something going on in my own life that makes it suddenly have profound meaning, uh, even if that meaning only exists to me. So, uh, like, yeah, complete opposite side of this argument. It's like, it's nonsense, but there, it's, it demands investigation. Yes, I 100% agree with that. I, um, the, I think that this movie is kind of an interesting example to juxtapose between these two ideas because um, it relies so much on misdirection, right? You know, like, think about how movies work, right? Movies, you don't watch, you're not actually watching a moving image. You're watching a bunch of still images like flashed on the screen, right? With a bunch of pixels that aren't even the color that they're pretending to be. They're actually just slight variations of three or four different colors, right? So what what's happening here is your brain is interpreting this signal as a moving image. And the position of those images together interprets, your brain interprets that as a story, right? You are the one making the movie work. <laughs> this thing doesn't work for people without our physiology. So this idea that like, oh, there's nothing to gleam from it or like, they're, they're like you know, it's, it's simply nothing. It rejects the entire idea of how we interpret art in general, where our brains do all of the work of interpreting stimulus and making patterns out of it. So um yeah, I, I like it's just what level uh, what level are you engaging with that, right? Are you are you actively working toward making up meaning or are you simply uh or is meaning being pushed on you by someone else, right? Either way, someone something is your brain is interpreting uh reality. It is the reality is not uh uh present. Wow. There you go. <laughs> How many episodes did it take us to get to like defining cinema in such a, uh, a clear way, such a physiological way. Uh, I think that's a good place to end our conversation on this movie, uh, on Glass Onion. As we do at the end of every episode, we will now deliver our rating. Joey, what rating do you want to give to this movie? I give this movie crying and bleeding as I cut glass onions. <laughs> um. I give this movie a tall glass of pineapple juice. Uh, and if you're, you know, a certain type of person, uh, drinking that will take you out of your misery if you didn't enjoy this movie. <laughs> Otherwise, if you did, then it's just a nice, sweet glass of pineapple juice. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> Joey, what's next on Affable Chat? Next, we are doing the movie White Noise. Yep, yeah. staying on Netflix. Gonna uh, sure. watch another one and... Uh, see adam driver do his thing that's right another recent release that's right okay yeah that's what's next you can subscribe to us on itunes spotify google play or wherever you get your podcasts affablechat.com is your new favorite website on the internet that's where you can find the latest from us and all our social accounts including twitter instagram tiktok and youtube and our username on all of those is affable chat and you can even email us at affablechat.com at gmail.com if you like this episode then tell a friend about it all you have to say is have you considered listening to affable chat affable chat is live on tuesday nights at 7 p.m eastern time on twitch.tv slash affable chat uh come join the chat that's gonna be right for this episode for apple chat i'm benjamin and i'm joey thanks for listening Mm -hmm.